Pastor Mike mentioned a moment ago, uh, we're beginning our series, our Soulful Songs of Summer, and music speaks to a way, us in a way that nothing else can. Uh, combined with the power of God's Word, it speaks to our hearts. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, unravel our hearts uh, from the things, the wrong things that we've attached them to. Lord, as we meditate on your word this day, help us to find our deepest identity in you, knowing that your blood throws through our veins. And Lord, help us as we see the waves and the storms of life coming our way to know that you walk with us through the waves and the storm and give us that peace. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Yeah, you guys, can, you guys could stand the whole time if you wanted to, but don't do that. Go ahead and sit down. Um, glad you're here with us this morning as uh, we celebrate uh, Father's Day. As I mentioned, we are in the middle of our beginning our series, Soulful Songs of Summer. Uh, but first, we also want to recognize fathers. Uh, today, we celebrate uh, Father's Day, uh, particularly um, godly fathers and the impact uh, that they can have uh, not only on their children, but on their grandchildren and on their great-grandchildren. But in our culture, we can be a little bit critical of fathers, can't we? You watch TV, you watch any of the soaps, or not soap operas, but the, the, the shows on TV, the, the rom-coms, sitcoms, whatever, and they pick on fathers a lot. You kind of show fathers to be kind of bumbling fools that don't know what they're doing. And sometimes we as men do that, but more often than not, men really know what they're doing, don't they? they? They fight for their family. They work hard for their family. And godly fathers especially have a powerful influence on their families. But being critical of fathers is something that we all do. I remember in high school, I was particularly critical of my dad. You know, we all kind of do that in high school. We think our parents don't know anything. And we get upset with them and frustrated with them and become critical of them. And... I didn't know what was going on because it got really bad between um, my dad and I, like my senior year in high school, just really bad. And you guys are seeing that picture up there and going, what in the world is going on? So that's kind of what I was wondering. I didn't know what was going on between my dad and I. And I went to visit my Uncle Tom in Idaho. And I slept in his study. And on his bookshelf in his study was this awesome chainsaw. Weighs about 35, 40 pounds, minted in about 1940, and had like a 24-inch bar on it. It's an awesome chainsaw. And so I kind of said to my Uncle Tom, who's a pastor at uh, Friendship Celebration in Eagle, Idaho, what is this? This is kind of creepy. You know, this is sitting above your Bibles. Like, what's going on? And he says, you don't know the story, Nathan. I said, no, what story? And he said, that's Grandpa's chainsaw. That's Grandpa Minnow's chainsaw. The one that he was holding when he died in your dad's arms. And then I understood something differently. See, my grandpa died when my dad was 17. And he died in my dad's arms. He just simply set down the chainsaw on the house where they lived uh, out in the orchard in Toledo, Ohio, and said, this chainsaw is heavier than I remember it, and died of a heart attack. And what I realized then, 
in December of 2001 was that during my senior year in high school, my dad had come to the end of his knowledge of what he knew about what it was to be a father. Because he didn't have a father after that point. And so he was bumping up against all of his fears and all of his anxieties, me being the firstborn of wondering, how are my kids going to turn out? Are they going to turn out okay? Because I don't know what to do anymore, and I don't know what it's supposed to look like, and Nathan's kind of an idiot right now. He's doing all those senior and high school things that I'm worried about him. And so he was bumping up against his fears and his anxieties about how he was supposed to be a dad, not knowing what it looked like. And as I think about my fears, uh, among my greatest fears is that. And maybe for some of you other dads and some of you other parents, it's the same thing. It's one of those ones that we think about other fears because this is such a big fear that we don't want to go there. More than anything else, if I think about my fears, I'm worried about my kids turning out okay. I don't want to mess them up. And so God's word speaks to us about how we can have a powerful and a positive influence on them. So from Isaiah uh, chapter 44, verses 1 through 5. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb and will keep you and will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, the righteous one, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. And I don't know much about grass, But I know a lot about poplar trees because when it comes to grass, grass grows for me where it's not supposed to and dies where it is supposed to grow. I don't know if anybody else has that problem. So that's one thing I'm failing at as a dad. I can't grow grass. So whatever that is. But poplar trees, poplar trees are an interesting plant. I would say they are kind of the weed of the plant tree world. Because they're usually used in things like windbreaks. And my uh, grandpa Loudenberg put them in on his farm, uh, my mom's dad and put them in behind the house and behind the machine shop and behind the barn. And what poplar trees do is they grow up fast. And as soon as they hit a certain point, they start setting up suckers. Little suckers, little trees that pop up all over the place. So thick, they're about every foot and all over the place. And they're anywhere from, you know, half inch around to an inch to two inches around. And they pop up every year. And so every year, my job uh, for a week during the summer was to go to grandma's house And with the axe, this is pretty awesome, and act like Paul Bunyan and chop down all of these little suckers. And it was like thousands of trees in this 200-foot stretch behind the machine shop and the house and the barn. They spring up like crazy. They spring up all over the place. And they are all influenced and all from those original trees. And now you're thinking, okay, what does this have to do with the godly influence that I can have. I was reading a book earlier this week, Unsung Heroes, The Epic Influence of a Godly Father. And the author shares 
this story of this one father. The potential impact of a good and godly father is almost immeasurable. Your influence will not only impact your children, but it will impact your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and your great-great-grandchildren. What you do with your children will be passed on to their children. That can include sinful traits as well as godly traits. Consider the impact of the life of one godly man named Jonathan Edwards. Renowned for his message entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he was a great preacher during the American history when the country was experiencing great spiritual awakening. But in addition to being a great preacher, he was an author and the president of Princeton University. Jonathan Edwards had 11 children, and of his known descendants, more than 300 of them became pastors, missionaries, or theological professors. 30 became judges, 120 became professors at various colleges, 110 were attorneys, 60 became prominent authors, 14 served as presidents of universities or colleges, 3 served in Congress, and 1 became vice president of the United States. Jonathan Edwards, even though he was a busy man, known to spend as many as 13 hours a day in study, But in spite of his busy schedule, he always made it a habit to come home each day and spend an hour with his children. To spend time with his children, passing on who he was. Most importantly, who he was in God. And we get the answer for how we can have that system, that root system that causes descendants to spring up that have the same identity, the same makeup, the same influence within them that is within us. We find that in verse 5. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of the Lord. Still others will write it on their hands, the Lord's, and will take the name of Israel. And here, what is being referenced is in the ancient world, people would put cuffs around their wrists, either a cuff made of leather or a cuff made of of metal to symbolize that they were underneath the lordship, the leadership of someone. And so the image here is that the people that call themselves by the name of the Lord are literally binding themselves to the name of God. They're writing it on their beings. They're saying, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I'm bound to no matter what comes. And so what we are being reminded of both in the song we just sung and in these words here, that if we want to have a powerful influence on our descendants, on those who come after us and be able to no longer be slaves to fear, we are to bind ourselves to God. And to see as our primary identity, our identity as a child of God. See, there's all sorts of other things that can take our primary identity. And so then the question is, is how do we apply this to our lives? If you've got your Bible with you or your phone, I encourage you to flip over uh, to 1 Peter Uh, chapter 5, where we'll pick up in in just a moment. See, most people spend their lives uh, trying to make their dreams come true. Because after all, that's what life is all about, isn't it? The pursuit of happiness. 
and for me when it comes to fears. Over the last three months, some of my greatest fears, some of my nightmares have become reality. You see, when Elise was born, we knew that she was different than Brie. And we thought that she was just a little bit more fussy. Uh, Because when she was about 10 months old, she began saying, owie. And we thought, oh, you know what, no big deal. This is just her word. This is just what she says. And she'd wake up in the middle of the night saying, owie. And um, so we'd bring her to bed with us. And I tell you what, I hated that. I hated that it kept me from getting a good night's sleep. Well, on February 27th, that would be the Monday before Ash Wednesday, we found out that she wasn't saying owie just because it wasn't just her word. It was because she was in pain. On February 27th, she was diagnosed with juvenile dermomatocytis, and it took me probably about this long to learn how to say that right, but it's an autoimmune disease. An autoimmune disease where her immune system is attacking her muscles and her skin. She'd had a rash, and we were told it was no big deal, nothing to worry about. But in February, they said, you know, we better take a second look at this and find out what's going on. And that's what they determined it was. And right after she got diagnosed, it got really scary because she stopped being able to walk. And she couldn't sleep. And so we rushed her to the hospital, not knowing how things were going to go, and we were really scared. And as a dad, as a parent, I don't think there is a greater fear than that. And so we kind of get through that. We've got her on medication. We've got her doing well. And uh, the doctors at Chalk are amazing. And this is kind of one of those things that, like, you see God's hand in it all. We got a house that's literally three blocks from Chalk. Like, this all could have happened when we're in Sedona, Arizona, and would have had a race down the mountain, down to Phoenix, two and a half hours away to get to Children's Hospital. But no, we live three blocks away from one of the best hospitals in the nation where they have a specialist who specializes in these type of autoimmune diseases. And so we kind of get through all that. That's, that's March and April, and things are going better, and Elise is doing well. And I kind of look up one day, and it was Mother's Day, and Lindsay's on her way down to surprise her mom and take the grandkids down to see her. And I'm looking at myself, I'm saying, you know what? Life is going pretty good. Life is going all right. We've kind of got through the hard part, and things are going good now. And I'm like, sweet, they're going down there. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to brew a beer. This sounds like a great idea. And so I go to buy ingredients for Gumball Head, a clone of a beer from Indiana that I really like. And I come back to hear the sound of a train running through the inside of my house. While I was gone buying ingredients, a faucet cartridge burst and flooded over 60% of our house. And as a father, that's one of the things you want to provide for your family is a place to call home, a place of security. It's kind of one of the signs in life that you've arrived and you're able to have a house and you say, okay, this is home for us. 
And then we lost that too. And so then the beer got renamed by one of my friends that's a pastor, Gumball Head the Homewrecker. <laughs> and in the middle of all that, if all that wasn't enough, sometime thereafter, after May 14th, I'm driving around going to visit someone and the engine on my car seizes. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Because this is crazy. And that's where these verses from Scripture really speak to my heart. Because in all of this, I've seen the hand of God working in my life and working in my family's life. So from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In all of this mess, in everything that has been going on, God has taught me and my family to trust in him, to trust in his love, to trust in what he's doing in our lives. And through all of it, God has carried us. God has walked with us. And everything is working out according to his plan. I've been able to tell my wife that for Mother's Day, when the house flooded, I got her new floors. They're not in yet, but I got you new floors. It's going to be okay. And, and my engine on my car that seized up, it was covered by a recall on the engine, and so I won't have my car for two months, and they've given me a nice rental in the meantime, but I'm going to get a brand new engine in my car, so that's pretty sweet. And Elise, by the grace of God, is doing really, really well. The medication is working, and for all signs, it seems like everything's going to turn out okay. She's going to grow up and be a normal little girl. And she doesn't know what's going on, but we know that she's going to get better. And we trust her to God's grace. And then verses 7 and 8. Actually, 8 and 9. Sorry about that. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You see, in all this, there's two ways that I could have taken all of this. The one way is to have all this uh, misplaced anger and resentment that I could have directed at my coworkers, could have uh, directed at God, could have directed at my family. Uh, this whole thing could have made me fall away from the faith and say, God is not trustworthy and turn my back on him. Because we have an enemy that is using all of this stuff in this sinful world to try and destroy our faith, trying to undermine our faith. And yet through it all, God has made us stronger and more resilient and more trusting in him and his provision. And there's someone in my life that... that the Spirit speaks to this person in a way that the Spirit doesn't speak to me. And it's pretty amazing. So as I'm, I'm studying for this, I kind of shared what I was studying and preparing for this sermon with this individual. And they said, I've got a verse for you. 
And they don't know what the verse says. They just say, okay, it's Jonah 2.8. So, okay, I'll go look it up and find out what it says. And it says this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so in the midst of all of this, that's what I began to see. That all these things that I think make up my life, that I think make up my happiness, these things that I want to hold on to too tightly, they don't make my life. That not, is not where true happiness is found. In all of this, Lindsay and I have kind of started to breathe a little bit deeper and looked up and said, you know what? We're okay. Our life's kind of a mess right now, but we're okay. We still are happy. It hasn't touched the deepest part of ourselves. And through all of this craziness, we're okay. And all of this, God was helping me to see with the eyes of faith that these things that I want to cling to, that I want to find my security in, aren't really where my security is found. And that brings us to the final two verses. And the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And what I hear in those words, you know, fears can be kind of like dreams, right? That's where they haunt us the most. It is our imagination where we think things can go wrong, where we think things can control us and overrun us. And what I hear in those words is that all of the world's wealth and power, all those things that can cause us to fear are like a dream. And as a Christian, they cannot enhance or ruin your greatest identity, happiness, or inheritance. And that's what I've learned through all of this, is in the midst of all of these things, they cannot touch my happiness, my inheritance, or my identity. Because those things are found elsewhere. Those things are found in Christ. And in the midst of all these things that swirl around in my life, and I know swirl around in your life, it can be easy to doubt. It can be easy to doubt that binding that we put on our hand, that claim to the Lord's that we have tried to take for ourselves and for our family. And so how do we know for sure? How do we know for certain that God loves us, that God cares for us, that, that God is going to take us through the waves, that, that God is going to unravel our hearts from the wrong things that we've attached them to? How can we know that his blood flows through our veins? I'll share with you these words. Some of these words are words that I sometimes share uh, as I bless kids when they come up at, at communion time. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm 
of my hands. We bind ourselves to God by taking the Lord's name, by saying, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And in the meantime, God takes and writes his name in the palm of your hand. In the palm of his hand, he writes your name, not with ink, but with nails, so that you can know for certain that you are his. Amen.